0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Hey, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to say that this week marks five years of the stacks, and I honestly cannot believe that this little idea I had to talk about books with some of my friends who love books has turned into The stacks as we know it now. So, for everyone who's listened to the show, for everyone who's told a friend, join the stacks pack on Patreon, given us a rating or review, or even listened to it and hated me so much you turned it off. I just want to say a huge, huge, huge thank you. And I'm really excited. There's some fun things coming from me for the rest of the year to celebrate the five-year anniversary. So please stay tuned for that. And I won't talk too much because I'll probably start crying. But again, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone. And if you haven't yet, go join the Stacks Pack on Patreon so we can continue to have this show week after week after week for the next at least five years. Thank you. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we're speaking with best-selling author and poet Clint Smith. Clint is also a friend of the podcast, and he is back in The Stacks for more literary goodness after his first appearance in 2021. Clint's here to talk about his latest book, a poetry collection called Above Ground. It was just released last week, and it is a powerful and wise rumination on the complex experience of fatherhood amid the tumult of our modern world. Clint is an Atlantic staff writer who wrote the award-winning and critically acclaimed How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, and his incredible debut poetry collection Counting Descent. Today we talk about the pressure to follow up How the Word is Passed, we talk a little bit about soccer, and of course the many, many books that have shaped Clint's life. Our book club selection for April is Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay. We will discuss that poetry collection on April 26th with Clint Smith. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Listen, if you love The Stacks and you want more of it, please join us over on Patreon. That's our exclusive community for supporters of the show. You can join for just $5 a month and you get all sorts of things like our very active Discord community, bonus episodes, and our monthly meetups to discuss our book club picks. Also, you get to know that your $5 are going to make The Stacks possible. I've got a lot of exciting things coming up later this year. And with your support, it's going to be possible. So please head to patreon.com slash The Stacks and join us now. A quick shout out to some of our newest members of The Stacks Pack. Catherine Booth, Eileen McGraw, Rachel Michelle Maxwell, and Janelle Hill. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not make the show without you. All right. Now it is time for my conversation with Clint Smith. All right, everybody. I am so excited. I get to welcome back a friend of the podcast, Clint Smith. You all must remember he was on the show in June, I believe, of 2021 for his last book, which was How the Word is Passed. And now he's back for his new book, which just came out at the end of March. It is called Above Ground. It is poems. Clint, welcome back to The Stacks.
1: It's so good to be here. My favorite
0: podcast. My favorite guest. Uh, well, I can't go on record. One of my favorites. Um, <laughs> one of the favorites. Gotta one of my favorites. Top tier. Um, okay, welcome back. How have you been?
1: Things have been good. It's been uh, a wild couple years. I think it's it's difficult to to overstate the extent to which my life has changed since the since how the word is passes came out. Um, yeah. It's it's been wild.
0: In what ways?
1: It, you know. It, I could have never dreamed that the book would get the response that it has. So many incredible writers write so many incredible books all the time that for one reason or another never reach the audience they deserve. And so I feel just immensely lucky that the book continues to find new readers. Um, It just kind of keeps going. It's got like a long tail. I, you know, I'm I'm always you know, getting messages from people who've just been introduced to the book and Mm. the sorts of messages I get from people, you know, just students who read the book in their high school history class who said it transformed their understanding of their Mm. own lives, of people who read it with their, you know, Fox News watching granddad who said they like, you know, we never talked about this kind of thing, but your book opened up space for this to happen. People who have messaged to say they visited the sites in the book. People who have messaged to say, that they that the book has like pushed them to think more critically or to even engage with historical sites in their own communities yeah. in different ways, right? People who pass the same cemetery every day on the way to work or pass the same, you know, live down the street from this museum that they never visited. And they just and and they talk about how my book gave them new tools with which to think about these places and new ways to think about public memory and iconography and yeah, it's. I mean, it's been amazing. I, I really can't say enough about how much it's meant to to get these sorts of messages from readers. And you know this because I think I talked about it on the podcast last time. But, like, I really wrote this book for, like, a 15, 16-year-old version of myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to write the sort of book that was going to help a, a high school version of Clint that would have given him the language, the toolkit, the history with which to more effectively understand why his state, his city, his country looked the way that it did. And there was a moment where I um, Zoomed with students at my former high school
0: Mm. who were reading the book. And it's,
1: you know, the history teachers at Ben Franklin High School in New Orleans had assigned it to to their students. And it was this sort of full circle moment because I wrote it for the version of me that was those kids, right? And I was like, man, they're sitting in the the literal classrooms right that that I sat in that I so desperately tried to orient the project to and it is there've been so many incredible moments but
0: did they um, like the book or did they roast you
1: i mean <laughs> they if they uh, there were uh, there was no roasting. Um, okay. Well,
0: I know how teenagers but, uh, are. Like you know, they would hey, be like, look, "Oh, okay, you went here. I, like, what was your, you know, like, right, right, whatever." Right.
1: They probably did it at lunchtime. Sure, not uh, not in class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, they they uh, <laughs> they held me down. I appreciated it.
0: I love it. So I wasn't going to start here, but this is something that I want to talk about. So we'll start here, and then we'll kind of go back. We're, we're going out of yep. order because you're a repeat. One of the things about you that I think people who were introduced to you through how the word is passed might not know is that you are a poet. And you are a poet. Your first book is Counting Descent, which was a collection of poems that actually is like the perfect pairing for how the word is passed. And now you're returning to poetry. And so and you've had the success with you're talking about with this book and your, you know, top 10 books of 2021 from The New York Times and your National Book Award and all of these things. What is the pressure, if any, or what is the feeling about releasing this new thing into the world that is connected but is not necessarily the same kind of thing. I think a lot of people follow up their successful book with like, how the word is passed too, like (laughs) monuments in my, in Washington, DC, like more, you know, Like and you've gone fully, I'm writing poems about parenting and family and legacy and death and grief and joy. And like, I'm writing poems, you know, and like it's a hundred pages and there's no Thomas Jefferson in sight. So what is that feeling, whether it's pressure, anxiety, excitement for you Going into this book launch. Yeah, it's funny.
1: I, um, I always think about my husband, Wesley Lowry, um, great journalist, great writer, mm-hmm. who who will have a new book coming out himself uh, later in the year. And one of the things he said after all the sort of wildness happened with how the word is passed, he's, he's like, man, the sequel, like, there's got to be a sequel. and You got to call it <laughs> To Pass, Too Furious. <laughs> and I was just like... I wasn't thinking of a sequel, but I might just so that I can Just so have you can title it that. Title, that yes. Just so I can title it that and make my own franchise. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's interesting. In so many ways, I'm so grateful that I'm following how the word is passed with a book in a completely different genre. Mm-hmm. First off, I, you know, the book came out almost two years ago. But in so many ways, it, it almost doesn't feel like it. Like, yeah. it. like, I feel like I'm still riding the, in the car that how the word is past built to right. like use a clunky metaphor, but, um, <laughs> it's extraordinary how it, much it still feels like a, huge part of my life mm. and you know i just had we just released the paperback
0: i know like, uh, just a few I was confused. months ago i actually was like wait was clint on in 2022 or 2020 i like literally had to go back yeah. and look to see i was like i thought it was 2021 but yeah it was a, a yeah. long yeah i mean tale. they kept
1: they kept it in, paper, in hardcover for a long time and released it in paperback just at the end of um basically early january of this year and so so in so many ways the book has now gotten the second life and been reintroduced to or introduced to many readers for the first time. And when I first decided that I was gonna publish my this next book two years after How the Word is passed, I was like, oh, two years. That's such such a long time. Like mm. great and and it's interesting the way it doesn't feel like a very long time. Um, but again, I'm I'm immensely, endlessly grateful for this long life that How the Word has passed has gotten to live. But I think it even it makes me feel even more grateful that the book that follows it is like the texture of this project is just so different. You know, it's um, I think there would have been a little bit of pressure um, following how the word is passed with another narrative nonfiction project. But the thing about uh, above ground is that and this is the case for so many books. But even though this book is coming out in, you know, end of March, 2023 these poems have been with me for years. You know, like these are poems that I've started, that I started writing when my wife was pregnant in 2016. Wow. And so, you know, this book is, it's it's a sort of largely chronological following of, my, of our journey from first becoming pregnant, um, or even before that, being told that we probably couldn't get pregnant, um, becoming pregnant, and then, uh, you know, having... When my wife had my son, and then my wife had our daughter, and then the sort of larger, what it means to raise children amid the sort of larger socio political historical realities shaping all of our lives at the at the same time, and the poems just sort of what, poetry for me is both the creation of art, but it's also the mechanism through which I do my best thinking, and and poetry is is kind of the act of paying attention, mm. and. So, you know, an example I give is, like, if you walk past the same tree every day in front of your house, like, you see the tree, you know it's there, you know what the tree looks like if somebody asks you to describe it. But it's something different when you stop and look at that tree with a different level of intention. And poetry is almost the act of stopping to look Hmm. at the tree. It is Hmm. because when you pass the tree, you see it but you don't see it with the specificity, with the granularity that you would if somebody was like, write a poem about that tree right. or take a photograph of that tree, right? So, you know, you when you look at the tree now, you might uh, home in on a particular leaf and you might see the way that that leaf is actually a few different shades of green, mm-hmm. or you might see the way that uh, the edges of the leaf are turning yellow as the season begins to change or the way that the leaf has a hole in it at the end where a caterpillar took a bite. Right. These these small, small things, but allows you to see the thing that you otherwise see every day. Right. With a different level of of intention and specificity. And I feel like these poems are are that in the context of parenthood. Right. Yeah. They're sort of these small poetic archives, these attempts to capture sort of time capsules and to hold on to these moments of of joy, of wonder of fear, of insecurity, and to to sort of capture them and to hold on to them. And in so many ways, what it does is it allows, it reminds me of how fleeting these moments are, right? Because you know, this is the most cliche, cliche thing in the world, but that like, it flies by, it right. goes by so quickly, but it does, it goes by so fast. And yeah. so all that's to say, it's just, you know, these are poems I wrote f- for me, right? Like, And there are hundreds of these poems about parenthood that aren't in this book, but that operate and play this, uh, that play a similar role in terms of just ensuring that I am taking the time to reflect and be present in um, what is otherwise like a wild, wild west of living, you know, being parents right. to young kids.
0: Do you feel like, I-, I love this analogy of like writing the poem as like a way to like really stop and like look at the tree. But as you were saying that, you said like take a photograph. And I'm just thinking like, is that not, what all art is in some way is like you, you you're using a different medium to talk about or think about or reflect on said tree so if you're a dancer and you take the time to choreograph a piece mm-hmm. about a tree you're still doing that same like kind of specificity and I'm thinking like because you write poems but you mm-hmm. also write narrative nonfiction, and I'm sure if you had to write narrative nonfiction about the tree you probably would also stop and like talk about those things so I'm just mm. it, I just think it's like interesting to think like whatever your potential medium is mm-hmm. art is the way to think about the tree
1: mm. no I, th- I think that's absolutely true
0: because um, I have no doubt <laughs> if you wrote a memoir about parenting it would be just as beautiful and and in depth, and you would still capture a lot of these things. It would be different because it would be a memoir yeah. and not poems. But I, knowing you and how detailed you are, and like how like how careful you are with your work, I think you would write a really good memoir about parenting too. Well,
1: that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> not um, that I know if
0: you can even write a memoir. I got to be honest.
1: <laughs> I I do not feel <laughs> equipped to write a memoir about parenting. It's interesting you say that about like narrative nonfiction. No, and details because. <laughs> I, my editor, Vanessa Mobley, um, who edited How the Word is Passed, was extraordinary. She's since left Little Brown and is mm-hmm. now at the New York Times um, doing amazing things. But it's funny that we're, like, talking about the trees. Because literally, I mean, you you read How the Word is Passed. So yes. You know, like, I love exposition. Yes. I love details. I love. I will sit there and describe the tree for, like, several pages. The problem. Is that that's what I did in all of my first drafts. And so like <laughs> and it she would got be, out the
0: red pen. I'm and like, she was like,
1: okay, cool, 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 lovely treat. Glad and you know that. Yes. Now
0: get to I'm, Monticello. Exactly, sort Where's of, uh, the Front Door?
1: <laughs> where we have <laughs> it's been seven pages and we yeah. haven't stepped foot inside Jefferson's home yet. Yes. So um <laughs> and so yeah, I mean, I, I think any genre, I think you're absolutely correct that that art plays that role for so many artists, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, I know my brother-in-law is a big photographer, and I know that um, he talks about it the same way, right? You know, I might write a poem about the tree. He might take photographs of the tree. And and those photographs might allow him to see the tree in ways that I, I don't even see with my poem. And my poem might allow him to see the tree mm-hmm. in ways that—and that's why it's so important to have various right. forms of art and various mediums and different genres. You know, for me, the things I like about—the thing I like about poetry is that, like, you can begin a poem with a question. mm mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessitate that you have to end the poem with an answer. If anything, you you end the poem with like more questions mm-hmm. or more wonderings, right? Like mm-hmm. so many of my poems are just just sort of like, you know, I, I think about a poem where my son is asking me about death, you know, and, and there's a version of that that somebody might write an op-ed about or an essay about or a... An academic article about where they sort of outline like what are the best ways to talk to your children about like life. And it's and I'm I'm not equipped to answer those questions. And for me, what the poem is is a sort of exploration of the uncertainty of like, did I answer that the right way? I think I did my best in that moment. Uh like I could have said this, but I could have said that, and I ended up saying this, and it felt clunky and it felt, you know, and so the poem for me is just that space with which to excavate and question and wonder and then the poem ends and you're like well i don't i don't know but this (laughs) is it but it captures it captures the moment and and you know memoirs can be written in all sorts of different ways and i'm sure that um but for me this felt like the medium through which i could most effectively just sort of reflect on on these parts of of this journey
0: Yeah. So I've read read Above Ground twice now. I read Mm -hmm. it uh, in December when I first got it because I couldn't wait. And then I read it yesterday because I wanted to refresh. And one of the things that struck me on the second read that I completely missed on the first read, which, okay, this is going to be embarrassing when I tell you what it is because you're going to be like, I started the collection here, is this idea of All At Once, which is Mm -hmm. the title of your first poem. Mm -hmm. And when I went into the collection the first time, I knew that it was like Clint's poetry collection on parenting. So Mm -hmm. I went in thinking that. And when I went back and I read it yesterday, the first poem details all of these things going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Fires and family and, you know, diagnoses and all of these things. And that all at once-ness for me now, that's the center of this collection. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't feel like a collection about parenting anymore. There are a lot of parts about parenting, but what it mm-hmm. feels like is a collection about all of the things that were going on since you started, since you became a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and for you, that looks like, you know, the, the passing of your grandmother. It looks like, you know, global events that have happened. It looks mm-hmm. like your, your wife's complications with her pregnancy. It looks like a swing. Mm -hmm. an ode to a swing or a bear hug. It looks like grocery shopping. It looks like, you know, one of my favorite poems or one of the poems that I think is like really interesting is there's a poem about people congratulating you on being super dad and you Mm -hmm. being like, yes, yes, I am super dad, but also my wife does these things every day. And, And that really changed the collection for me because I feel like in my mind, and maybe because this is something I'm pushing against personally, I feel like parenting is like a small part of a lot of things. And it's not often contextualized in the bigger part of a lot of things, right? Like it's like mm. people ask me like, oh, what's it like to be a twin mom? And I'm like, well, I can't really t- change that, take that out of what it's like to have survived this pandemic so far and to have become a parent at the beginning, to have been pregnant and had children right before this happened. And so I don't know. There's not really a question there. But I would love for you to talk about this idea of all at once and let me know if I am onto the right track at all.
1: (laughs) No, no, I mean, there's a reason that the book began that way. And I love you saying that because I think it's also just a reminder of, you know, and we're having this sort of meta conversation about art now. But like, I think that's what happens with all kinds of
0: art. And like, especially with books, for me, it's also like to... Have been told what it was about, like mm. from marketing right. versus to. I once I read it, I knew what it was about. And then when I reread it, I was able to be like, oh, this is a book about parenting. And then the first thing I see, I'm like, this isn't a book about parenting. <laughs> I was lied to. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, and I think your point about like when people ask you about what it's like to be a twin mom, and you're like, well, I can't answer that outside the context of XYZ.
0: Yeah. I
1: mean, I think, you know, to the extent that this, is a book about parenting. It's because parenting animates every part of my life now, right? right. So, so everything that I experience in the world is animated by either in the foreground being a father or in the background being a father, right? It, it is, And that's present in how the word is passed too, right? Like part of what changed the way I wrote and thought about that project was that as soon as I started the project, my son came into the world. And mm-hmm. so even the things around like family separation, like when, whenever I thought about the spectacle, the, the sort of cruelty of slavery, mm-hmm. I largely thought about it through the context of the spectacle of physical brutality mm-hmm. that black people and that enslaved people were um, the beatings and the whippings and the torture. And, and obviously that's a huge part of it, but it wasn't until it became apparent that like family separation came mm. into the foreground of my consciousness, mm-hmm, where I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this, you know." And I and I do have one poem about this in in the collection, um, but just thinking about what would it mean if you went to sleep at night? You know, I remember standing in the Whitney Plantation, thinking in a, in one of the original slave cabins and looking at the bed where enslaved people, you know, a version of what enslaved where enslaved people once slept. And just imagining like what it would be like if I went to sleep one night, put my kids to bed and I woke up the next day and my children were gone. And I had no idea where they went. I had no idea who had taken them. I had no idea if I would ever see them again. It's a a sort of unfathomable type of cruelty, a type of horror. And then you realize that this is the omnipresent threat that millions of enslaved people lived under every single day of their lives, that at any moment you could be taken away from your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your children, your parent you know just for for no reason at all and and so that shows up in my previous book in ways that are com- sometimes more subtle but it's because of becoming a parent that the emotional stakes and the emotional texture of my understanding of those moments has been changed because I have a different level of empathy as a result of my own parenting and so in this book it is all that like, that is the sort of central animating feature is the sort of both andedness the right. all at onceness right. of of what it means to be human in this moment like and, and for me, that is what it means to hold these moments of watching my child have their first hiccup or watching the you know my family show up for their first birthday party or watching you know, as they discover a ladybug for the first time or a cicada for the first time or the first time we go to a beach or that all of these moments are shared, these interpersonal granular moments of of profound joy amid a backdrop of what often feels like global catastrophe, right? right. You know, climate change and and war and, uh, violence, both domestically, you know, uh, and across the world. I mean, and, and this is a theme that I think shows up in, in all of my work, because it's something I'm, I will probably wrestle with across, you know, all of my books until I'm gone. But, but it is that sort of both and right, like collect the counting dissent ostensibly is a book that's mostly about like coming of age as a young black man, black child, and thinking of what that means in the midst of the black sort of emerging Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. But what's true and what shows up in that book is that like we all were watching black people killed at the hands of police incessantly, felt Mm -hmm. like, you know, for years. And at that same time, I was falling in love with the woman who would become my wife. Right? right and that like those two things happen alongside one another because because the human experience is not neatly bifurcated into right. like you only experience tragedy here and you only experience love and levity here it's it's that you they are all happening simultaneously and you are figuring out what it means to to carry all of that in your body and your spirit together and so this book is is thinking about you know losing my grandmother or losing my grandfather while my child is coming into the world, or thinking about the parts of parenting that are, you know, there's so many parts that are, are amazing and joyous and jubilant. And there are a lot of parts of it that are really hard and yeah. really exhausting and really humbling.
0: Sucky. Yeah.
1: And it just, <laughs> and, and I didn't want to write a book that is like, wow, like parenting, it's amazing. It's only great. It's only, it is wonderful and it's the most challenging, humbling thing I've ever done in my life. And and I just, I guess my whole thing that you've kind of touched on is, is we don't have to write into spaces or talk about things in ways that pretend as if the other parts of any given experience don't exist.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I think that's what makes this collection really great is like the, po- like the juxtaposition of poems you know, an ode to a bear hug, you know, followed by a poem about, you know, grief or something like, because mm-hmm. it just feels really, it feels like life, right? Like, I, hearing you talk about, like, taking your kid to the beach for the first or whatever next to these other things, it's making me think about January 6th. Um, My kids were, had just started, you know, they were not just started, but they were, they were walking, they were You know, so we were going to the park a lot, Mm -hmm. and I remember after nap time, I was getting ready to take them to the park, and I like text my brother, and he, uh, I can't think it was like a picture of my kids. He's like, "Are you not watching the TV right now?" And I was like, "No, I'm about to take the boys to the park. They just woke up from their their nap," and he's like, "No, you need to turn on the TV." And then we didn't go to the park that day, which was like a huge, yeah, you know change in our schedule because at this time, because of COVID, we I didn't have help. So I was like very regimented, all this stuff. And like, it always sticks in my head that the way I found out about January 6th was because it was a canceled trip to the park, which yeah. like, ma- made such a big deal to me. And on the flip side, I was at the park when the verdict came out for the George Floyd you know, that whole situation. And I remember being like, cause I'm in LA and LA is notorious for a bazillion helicopters. And there were all these helicopters flying over the park and it was making me so anxious. Mm-hmm. Like, and I was like waiting on my phone and I kept texting my husband being like, I just want to go home. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be outside. I don't want to be around these people. Like, I don't get like, and I was like freaking out, but of course I'm like in the park, like pushing yeah. my kid on the swing. So on the outside I look fine, but I'm like, feverishly texting my husband and thinking about like the world falling apart while also like being a mom and like don't want to stress my kids out because it really just is a Tuesday at the park but um yeah no yeah it's, it's so that's right it.
1: on. like that's that's what that's what it and I think that that's what it is for the rest of our lives as parents yeah. right like it you it's it is that simultaneity it is that juxtaposition it is right. that sense of And it's that, this sort of weird feeling of, and I don't know how, you know, how you experience, but sometimes I'll have these moments where, you know, something like that is happening in the world or like Russia just invaded Ukraine. You just heard the story in the morning about, you know, like the Ukrainian children who were abducted by, or the children in Afghanistan who don't have any food to eat or the kids in Detroit who, you know, don't have whatever the case may be. And you're like, Feeding your kids some Cheerios, or like pushing them in the swing, or you're, you know, it's even the sort of, it's a sort of cognitive dissonance almost right. that you, but a kind of cognitive dissonance that you just, I don't want to say learn to live with because that feels like it, it, reductive, but, but it is again that sort of what it means to hold, sometimes interpersonal moments of joy or wonder or levity or appreciation or gratitude amid either on a geopolitical scale or within your own family, right? Because it's right. not always the case that like you have to look abroad for this sort of right. thing. Sometimes it's like you and your partner are in a fight, you know, right. or you and your your mom just got a, di- a scary diagnosis from the doctor or right. you're, no, you know, somebody you can't find your cousin and they don't know where he, you know, it's just yeah. it, that this, and you got to, at the same time, like, get on the ground and pretend to be a brachiosaurus, right? Because, right? like, it's—and and, it's—how do we— Not the
0: specific brachiosaurus, The okay.
1: brachiosaurus—always the brachiosaurus, man. And, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm just so interested in in that, right? And in the—and and that's why I don't know that—I I don't know how I would write about that in, like, a n- memoir narrative nonfiction context. Yeah. Again, I, that's not to say people write— beautiful books, um, nonfiction projects about parenting that aren't like quote unquote parenting books, like how to do this or how to do that. But, but for me, poems feel like the most natural way to simply wrestle with, with those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. Okay. Everybody don't freak out. We have to kind of transition this conversation. However, Clint will be back at the end of the month to discuss poetry because it is April, which is Poetry Month. And we will be talking a lot more. And I have some more questions about your collection specifically. And also we're talking about Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay. So there will be more poetry conversations, but we do have to transition to Clint's reading life because I have questions. Uh, So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Okay, we're back. Um, I didn't prep you for this, but every month we do an Ask the Stacks where someone writes in and we have to give them book recommendations. Okay. This one.
1: I think this didn't happen on our last
0: one. No, because you happened. didn't do the two part. Only people who do the two part get oh, to do this. Yeah. Okay. Just, Here yeah, we go. Because last time we talked just about how the word is passed. This time we're going to talk about Clint too. Yeah. Normally we start these with like, tell me about yourself, but we sort of just dove in and I don't know, maybe we'll do that in a minute. But um, so Amy wrote in, this just came in last night and I thought this was a good one for you. So we'll see. Mm. Amy said, I'm looking for a book about dealing with terminally ill loved ones. I really enjoyed Rob Delaney's book, and I really appreciated your episode with Marissa Renee Lee, but I realized most of these books are about loss or after loss, and I'm wondering if you or your guest have any recommendations for caring or coping. I do prefer nonfiction, but I'm open to fiction as well. Some context – I lost a parent to cancer when I was young, and I have a friend whose dad is currently receiving treatment, and so she asked me for recs, and I realized all I could think of were ones after someone died, and I don't think that's great when you're hoping your loved one will pull through something. Um, so first of all, Amy, very sorry to hear about your friend's dad and your your experiences, um, and this is sort of tricky. So I don't know. If you have one or two, I, I wrote down a handful. Um, I can go first or you can go first. You tell me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I appreciate them reaching out with that question. Um, I actually just finished a book that I really appreciated by the poet and writer. I hate. I'm not going to say poet and writer because I hate when people do that because it's like as if poet's not a not a writer. Poet <laughs> and essayist or poet and nonfiction writer, Megan O'Rourke, uh, oh. who wrote a book, The Invisible Kingdom. Uh, I think it was a National Book Award finalist last year. Yeah, uh, and it is. Adjacent to, I think, what is being asked, but I think there's a lot of overlap. Um, It is about Megan's experience living with chronic illness. And I have people in my life who are also living with chronic illness and are living with conditions that aren't easily diagnosable. And I've seen and witnessed firsthand the... uh, the sort of grief one experiences living with something that doesn't have a name, um, having symptoms that won't go away. And the, it is an illness that depending on the nature of the chronic illness that is killing you at various speeds, right? Like it, and, right. so to speak, but, but I've also seen the way the sort of emotional toll that it takes on people um, and how difficult it is to, to live with. And, and, you know, part of what she writes about also is what it's like for her family mm-hmm. to the experience of her husband, um, the experience of her parents and how she is both navigating the grief within her, but what it is like for these people around her to feel so helpless. Mm-hmm. Cause you want, you see this person you love suffering and you want to help them, but you don't, yeah. but you don't know how the doctors don't even know how. And so it, it, it was very helpful because it gave me a lot of language. It gave me a lot of insight into the specific experience of a person who, you know, I, I think she's been living with her chronic illness for for decades. Um, yeah. So it's not quite about grief or people dying in a, in a literal sense, but there, it is about, you know, this woman is sort of mourning the life that she thought she would have
0: when and
1: then realizing that she is going to have to recalibrate her her expectations about what her own life and her conception of of her own health will will be
0: yeah i read that it was Mm -hmm. good um you, did, you said way more than it was good. <laughs> anyway, it was good. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah I read it. Um, okay. So I have a few different options for you, Amy, and some of them do end in death and some of them do not. Um, the first kind of category I have is what I call a cancer or death memoir. Um, we've done a few on the podcast. So The Unwinding of the Miracle by Julie Williams. It's her memoir. She does die at the end of the book. Um, it's not a spoiler. It's Common knowledge, um, which we did do an episode on that, and then the other one we did was um, the Undying, which won the Pulitzer, and it's this woman who gets breast cancer, and she sort of like talks about her experiences and also the medical community and all of these things. Um, and then the third one that fits in this category would be When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Colathini, which is very well known. Again, he's a young doctor who gets cancer, has to drop out, and he also ends up dying. So two of those people do die, one of those people don't, but those are all sort of in the same. You know, first person cancer memoir. The other one I would suggest is called My Own Country by Abraham Verghese, and um, and I love him. He he wrote that book, uh, Cutting for Stone, as mm. well. And he is a doctor, and he at the beginning of his medical career, he ends up in. Um, Tennessee, rural Tennessee in the early 1980s, and he's an infectious disease specialist. And so he is treating people for HIV and AIDS at the beginning of the crisis when a lot of people either are treating people in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles or are not treating people at all. And he talks about kind of being with people who are sick and who are dying and what that experience is like for him. Um, it's sort—it's not exactly what you've asked for, but I do think that it speaks to sort of this being present among the ill and among the people who are dying. Um, and then the last one is Being Mortal by Atal Gawande, another doctor. And he writes sort of about the end-of-life care system. So this one's like – it's got some, you know, narrative nonfiction vibes to it, but it's a little bit more nonfiction-y than the other ones. It's definitely not a memoir, but he's talking about terminal illness and how we deal with that um, as individuals and as communities. So, sort of a lot of recommendations because I don't know that anything's exactly what you're what you've asked for, but I think they're all really good recommendations. <laughs> I just want to add one more thing and I don't have a specific book recommendation, but I just I'll share a personal story when my father was ill and he you know, he was ill for a long time and then he went into hospice care and a family friend gave us uh, gave me this like little paperback book that was like how to say goodbye to your loved ones. Like it was like sort of like a end of life how to type book maybe 50 maybe 100 pages and I don't remember the name but it was very helpful Mm. and they I think you know especially in this space where it's like we're a literary podcast and we want like great writing and all of these things this book is not necessarily that but it was really helpful to think about how the end of life will be and potentially feel and what it might look like and so I I don't know you know you said not your friend's not quite there yet, but it might be something to get for her if if it does end up that way because it's sort of a book that I would never have purchased for myself and I read it in you know one sitting or whatever and you know it, it's not great, but I read it and I obviously don't remember the title. I'll, I'll try to find it. If I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes. but that's another kind of book that might be helpful that's maybe not like a super compelling read, but might be like a, a useful read. Amy, if you read it, you have to tell us any of these books. You have to tell us what you think. And anyone who wants a book recommendation, email askthestacks at the Stackspodcast.com. Okay, Clint, we're transitioning to your reading life. And since we didn't do this at the beginning, will you just tell people a little bit about yourself and maybe like a little bit about your relationship to books, like when you remember first like getting into reading or, or whatever that means to you?
1: Yeah, I... You know, it's interesting. I don't know if I told this story on the first podcast, but I always remember in third grade where my teacher, uh, Miss Mueller, she uh, had us write poems about colors. And I wrote about the color gray. I don't know why I was a strange and solemn child. Um, <laughs> but I remember how the poem goes. It was a version of, uh, I hate the color gray. It reminds me of a rainy day. Gray, I really hate that color. It's annoying, like my little brother. Um, and <laughs> I remember she came over to me and she she looked at the poem on the desk in front of me. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, "Clint, that was beautiful. You can be a writer when you grow up." Aww. For all I know, she could have said that to every single kid in the class. For all I know, she could have like said that out loud and in her head, be like, "Man, I need to tell like recommend this kid to, them, to mental health. Uh, you know, like he's he's going through a dark period or something." Um, but I remembered that moment for the rest of my life. And it's, and that's not to say that like I'm creating a neat, linear uh, right. causal relationship or, or, or line between the moment in third grade where Miss Mueller said this right. and then, you know, me being a writer today, but, but I, I she's
0: still alive.
1: She is still alive. She came to my re I had a reading in new Orleans, uh, maybe a year or two, ago, sometime in the, how the word is past tour. Um, but she came. It was the first time I saw her in, in know, decades. Um, and, and it was so wonderful. Right. And did and you I think, tell
0: that story. Did you have I, your Adele moment? I think
1: she, heard, I think she heard it on, cause right. I think I've told that story a couple of times on a couple oh, okay. radio programs. And I, I remember she it's, and it's, it's funny cause I've been a teacher and I've said mm-hmm. things to kids that I have met very earnestly, but I don't, right. I, don't I don't remember, don't remember at remember. all. Right. And yeah. she's just like, that i'm so it's so wonderful that you remembered that i <laughs> mean so much uh, i'm pretty sure she did not remember saying that um, <laughs> but uh but she found it really meaningful that i did and it was it was wonderful we took a picture um together and and uh yeah it was very sweet so i've i i, I guess i just say that because like reading and writing have i've been instilled both from my teachers and from my family With this sense that like this was that uh, writing was something that I was capable of. Um, There was always this belief that was instilled in me that like this is something that if you want, you can do at various points in my life. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's cute. But like I'm going to be a professional soccer player. So I have no need for this information. Like I'm going to I'm going to play for Arsenal and live in London. It's going to be great. Um, It didn't work out like that. And here we are. But I have—I should say for all those on podcasts who don't know that my team is currently above Tracy's team. Um, Barely. in the By five points, there's, what, 12 games left in the season. I'm not going to turn this into a why Arsenal are better than Manchester City podcast or why it would be well, better. Well, you took
0: our entire team and our coach, so sorry that you're just trying to copy us. I don't know. I just feel like it's like get your own identity, right? Like, <laughs> or what is a, this? a sort
1: of student it's becomes like, the master sort of thing. Mm, um, okay. You know. So, so we're going to win this Premier League title. It's going to be great. Anyway, I thought I would be a part of that. I'm not a part of that. I'm um, a mere writer. Uh, but but because of that, writing and reading have always been very intertwined, right? Like it was, I always was told that if you want to be a better writer, you need to read more. And I really, it was just always part of my life. My mom always brought us to the, uh, the library in New Orleans. Um, I was very big on the, uh, summer reading uh, contest Challenge. oh my yeah. gosh like and maybe this is the thing a lot of writers tell you but like I was I was very very into it because I was so motivated to win that personal pan pizza from pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. I, I was like I want to I don't know I can't remember if you were allowed to get more than one but I was like I'm gonna get like seven pizzas yeah. <laughs> All right I'm gonna read 7,000 pages oh and get seven pizzas and it's interesting oh I mean we don't we probably don't have time to get into this but like there is an interesting relationship for me between my life as a writer and thus a reader, and my like a s- competition. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'm like making these connections in real time on your podcast. So thank you for it. becoming my my therapist um,
0: exclusively. <laughs> you heard it here first, people.
1: But but it is interesting, right? Because like I was so motivated by the competition of the summer reading contest at the public library. When I realized when I was like 19 and had my sort of existential crisis of like who, I, cause I, I got a scholarship to play uh, soccer in college. I played at Davidson college, but I didn't really play. Um, and mm. so this thing that had been the center of my identity growing up, like I was always Clint, the soccer player. That's what I was known as. Mm. That was my social identity. That was my, Athletic identity—that was who I understood myself to be in the world—and suddenly I got to school. I was playing at this D one school, which had been my dream, and I wasn't playing a lot. And so I was kind of trying to figure out like who I was off the field in a way that I had never had to before. And it was that some the summer of two thousand eight, when I was a uh, between my sophomore and junior year in college, I went to the New York Poets Cafe. And New and Post Cafe, for those who don't know, is this poetry cafe on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, this legendary spot. I mean, so many of the writers you love and poets you love have, like, come from that space or graced that stage. Um, Mo Brown was the longtime host and uh, curator of the Friday Night Poetry Slam. And I remember I went, and this was when I was a sort of, like, disillusioned English major. You know, we were reading Keats and Yeats and... You know Whitman and frost and and all these folks who, at the time, I had a difficult time accessing because it felt like that was the only mm-hmm. way that poet- it felt like I was being taught that that was the only way poetry could look um mm-hmm. and I've stepped into this space where you know it's full of black people and brown people and you know, people speaking different languages and and people and like Biggie is playing on the, you know, on the stereo <laughs> and people are drinking and laughing. And I was like, is this a poetry show? Like, what is this? Um, right. and I will always remember and one of the first poems I ever heard was by a woman who had cerebral palsy. And she got on stage and did this poem. And in three minutes, the way I thought about an entire demographic, of people completely changed. Like I left that yeah. night, never thinking about disability the same way again. And I remember being like, I don't know what this is. Like, I don't know what spoken word poetry is, but I want to do it. And I went back to Davidson and like, you know, I was on the soccer team. We showed up for preseason. Uh, My friends were playing FIFA. And I was like, y'all, I think I'm going to be a poet. Everybody turned around and be like, a poet? Like, what? Like, boo, you're (laughs) whack. Like, shut up. Um, And I started a poetry group at Davidson. And we kind of like... Kind of cosplayed dead poet society, we like got together right. in the uh, in the, <laughs> the main academic building on Sunday nights and like wrote poems and read poems and shared poems and it was but but part of what the connection I'm making is that there was also a big slam poetry scene in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was just twenty All minutes right. away from Davidson, and I was just so I would go to this thing every time they had a poetry slam and I would enter the poetry slam and I was trash and I was terrible, and I would lose in the first round and I but there was something about the competitive framework of it that tapped into the part of me that had been an athlete my whole life, mm-hmm. that also tapped into the part of me that made me want to win the personal pan pizza from the yeah. public library, that served as an entry point into literature, that allowed me to recalibrate my relationship to literature, to then go back to Keats and Yeats and Frost and Whitman and access them and appreciate them in a different sort of way. Because it was like, oh, I have a, a more expansive understanding of what literature can be. And now I can appreciate the the canon, so to speak, for what it offers and also critique it for what it doesn't. Um, right. But but yeah, one thing that has been a a sort of animating feature of my life is the way that competition or competitive infrastructure has facilitated my relationship to literature in ways that are very clear to me. I don't know if that's to say that it's like healthy or, or good necessarily, but
0: competition um, is great.
1: I'm 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 there with you. But I'm I know that that's n- but I know that's not the case for everybody.
0: And a lot of people in like the literary space don't find the value in competition. And I mean for me it's just like a personal motivating factor. Like I'm super competitive with myself and I'm also privately competitive with other people but never publicly unless they deserve it. Uh, <laughs> which isn't to say it won't happen one day, right. but I try to keep it together but I think there's like a I think a lot of people who are in literary and art spaces come to it from not necessarily from an athletic background Mm. first and so they don't see the value in competition and I'm as you know a big sports person and like that's what motivates me competition just competition with myself like how many boxes can I check on my to-do list you know like just like all that kind of stuff. this is why we got to
1: find each other on Peloton so we can try to outdo each other
0: I am competitive with people I know from the book space on Peloton in a very creepy way. Like, I is only, there a
1: Peloton Bookstagram community?
0: There, I think I have one of the hashtags or something. But like, I like some authors because you can see that I have a Peloton ah. in the background. I like follow now. Like, I I shouldn't name Nate. I'm going to name a yeah. name. So like, Justin <laughs> Tinsley is on Peloton, okay. and I follow him. And I'll purposely take classes he's taken to try That's to like beat so him. <laughs> like really, oh, man. really creepy like that. Take this biggie biographer. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, Good, nice try, Tins. Um, oh, but I sometimes beat him, just FYI. Yeah.
1: I do want to say about the competitive piece that like, for me, I think it was very helpful as an entry point into mm-hmm. literature, right? It was helpful when I was a kid and it was helpful when I was experience. I needed a thing that would serve as a bridge in for me coming from sports being the center of my life to now making books, the center of my right. life. Um, I do think that one of the things about like in the literary space, so to speak, that competition can be like a really debilitating thing. Mm. Um, and, and so my, my competitive instincts don't exist in the same way in, in the context of my current work. Like I'm yeah. not, like I have no sense of, desire to compete for like prizes and stuff. Sure. Like I like I like certainly I I'm immensely grateful that, you know, if I'm nominated, if I win right, and, right. and you know, I experienced some of that with how the word is passed. And it's it's amazing. But it's not there's no like, I'm not out here being like, you know, a, who's a person we both know, like, all right, David Dennis, like right. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get that National <laughs> right. Book Critic Circle Award. You, you know, it's like, not it's not like that at all. No, because I... part of it is you realize that like so much of that is beyond your control, right? Yeah. There's so much that it has nothing to do with you. And if you if you use those external realities and, and prizes and bestseller lists or all of that to be the thing, to be your metric for whether your book is successful or not, that's not a healthy relationship to your work.
0: Yeah. No, I, I hear that. I'm competitive. And so I would be like, I'm going to win a national book award. It wouldn't necessarily be like, I need to beat Clint, but it would got be it. like, this is, but like, I'm also very goal oriented. So for me, mm-hmm. it's sort of one and the same. It's like, okay, these are the things I want to check off my list. And like, I have a lot of lists where things are written down that I like to right. check them off. I got you. Um, okay. We have to talk about your books. People are going to be so mad. We're not going to get to a lot of the questions, <laughs> but we're going to do our best. Two books you love, one book you hate. Uh,
1: I'm just looking at what's on my desk right now. Um, <laughs> I love Friend of the Pod. Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain. I mean, Patrick Radden Keefe's everything.
0: Is he right? perfect? The, What's I up mean, with I mean, is he,
1: he's, I. we had lunch um, when he came in town for his uh, Rogues tour and, and he's, you know when you, there's just certain people you meet and you're like, you're actually cooler than I thought you were because yeah. you're like, am I going to be disappointed? This person's writing means so much to me. He's just like, a cool-ass cool dude. Yeah. Just a cool-ass cool. dude. You know, just a good, good dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's among the best of the best in the history of narrative nonfiction. So anything by Patrick Gratton-Keefe, but I'm looking at Empire of Pain right now. Um, another book I love, uh, Jhumpa Lahiri, Interpreter of Maladies, mm. um, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, fiction collection. The characters in her book and the worlds she writes about have ostensibly nothing to do with me or mm. my life. Mm-hmm. Um and yet I feel so many parts of me feel so seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it really, her work is such a beautiful example of the way that writing into granular experiences um, and specific experiences can have, can carry these universal themes of loss and longing and um, transition. And it's, uh, yeah, she's an incredible, incredible writer. Uh, and one that I hate, mm-hmm. man. <laughs> uh you know, I really did not like The Sun Also Rises.
0: Mm. Like,
1: I've tried really hard. Um, I love The Old Man in the Sea. Um, it's very short. It's like, very, you could read it in one sitting. Um, it's kind of a novella. Uh, I thought that was very good. And I was like, okay, Hemingway. So, this is after I watched the Ken Burns documentary. Okay. And I was like, this is a writer who's central to the American canon who I realized that, like, I've not really engaged with. And so I read old man in the sea and I was like, cool, cool. Like I really enjoy this book. And then I read the sun also rises, which is one of his most critically acclaimed books. And I was just like, this is not it. Like Mm -hmm. it just did not, uh, did not do it for me. So, um,
0: Sorry, Ernest. Sorry,
1: Ernest. It's uh Better luck you next know.
0: time Maybe little books.
1: <laughs> You're a good fisherman, but nice uh, try. Not it was yeah, it was it was and some people love it. And that's you know, again, like that's yeah. that's art, that's literature, that's how it goes. But for me, it was I was so very no. underwhelmed. It's not often that I don't finish a book, huh? but I like got halfway through and I
0: was like, I, I can't, can't keep going it. with
1: this. Yeah.
0: What are you reading right now?
1: So a couple things. I just finished um the time, this time tomorrow, by Emma Straub, um, mm. who is a writer who's a big a big presence in the literary space because she owns um, Books those bookstores in New York, and and I think is she seems like a very kind person. I've ne- I i do not uh, know that I've met her in person. I might have met her in person very briefly one time, but didn't know her. But I kept seeing her her work around, and I uh, I read her latest novel, and and it was really great. One of the things that I enjoyed was the relationship between. The Daughter and Father. It was it was rich. It was complex. It was nuanced. It's about this this woman who, like, travels back in time. But it's a sort of meta-time travel novel because she's aware that, like, right. it's absurd that she's traveling. But she's like, wait, this is weird. Like, I'm not in Back to the Future. What's going on? And so, right. um, but I thought it was really well done. Uh, I just read a novel by my friend, the poet, Kava Akbar, um, who just sold his novel to Knopf. I think it's going to come out early 2024. Okay. Uh, called Martyr. Extraordinary. Just like blew me away. It is it is so, so good. This novel's gonna make a huge splash. Can't it's wait to amazing. add it to my
0: 2024 list. There you go. It, it and now. then um
1: my my friend and old uh advisor, Matthew Desmond. His <gasps> I'm new book. reading
0: that right now. Oh
1: man. P- Poverty I mean, by America. Poverty by America. I'm on chapter yeah. two. Matt is, uh it's a different vibe. Totally to different. He's Very not different trying vibe. to win a
0: Pulitzer Prize with this one.
1: Yeah, it's a different situation, titru- but he is He's one of the most generous, thoughtful, rigorous people. Like when I think of the model academic, like I think of somebody like Matt who Mm. just, he's such a good person and is so earnest in his commitment to his work. And part of this book, what this book is, is a reflection Mm -hmm. of his commitment to rigorous analysis and engagement with like a big qu- like poverty, why do we have poverty in america yeah. you know and and his commitment to excavating the answers to that so that we might more effectively create policy so that we might yeah. more effectively build a sort of world in which there are not millions of people living in poverty, and so it is it's cool to see a book that is. An extension of someone's sort of larger mm-hmm. personal commitments, mm-hmm. um, and this is very much one of those types of books.
0: Yeah, and I should say, I said he's not trying to win a Pulitzer with this. I I mean that in a comp- not in a complimentary or disparaging way it's just so different from evicted evicted is like this like narrative nonfiction, and like really weaving things and so far this book is much more like facts and figures here's what's going on like if we want to change it this is what we need to do and generally those types of books aren't like pulitzer books is what i meant but it's really well done and i'm super into it i just didn't want people to think i was shitting on him by being like it's not a pulitzer it's just not the same it's not that kind of it's a different type of book Yeah, yeah but it's it's really good What's a book you like to recommend to people?
1: Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Yeah, I think about it all the time. I always tell people I'm the president of the Pachinko fan club. Um, I don't know. You
0: might have to fight Imani Perry on that. She's oh. a huge fan of that book.
1: Oh man. You you uh I I remember tried this it. was one of your fiction projects. I tried
0: to read it. It just I wasn't for you. I, I, I need to read it for the podcast because I need to know that someone's gonna talk to me about it at the end. It. Because it just it's a little it was a little slow for me. I like got a hundred pages in and I was like, you know what? I can't do it on my own. I need I need help. Throw me yeah. a lifeline. Um, oh, I see your beautiful bookshelves behind you. How do you organize mm-hmm. your books?
1: Right now, there's no organization. It is. <laughs> Welcome it's to my world. Bad. <laughs> um, no, I, I. So we recently moved into a, a, a new spot and there's no rhyme or reason to anything. <laughs> like what you see in this frame is not all the books that are like around me on the floor. Um, so there's you. I mean, I, I roughly have a nonfiction fiction. and Poetry section. Um okay. so that is the extent of the organization, but it's in my ideal world, it's alphabetized. Cause I do there are moments I often want to look for a book mm-hmm. and then have no idea where it is. Okay. Um so I do want to create a more uh streamlined system, but I currently
0: don't have it at all right now.
1: One thing I'm not a fan of, and
0: it's me. You don't like color. I hear it. I hear it coming in your <laughs> I, voice. Oh, man,
1: I don't I literally do, could you, hear it. Do you color I, coordinate? I do. I don't understand. I (laughs) I have a very visual memory. So I I can remember
0: a book. I oftentimes have no... Clue who wrote a book. Sometimes okay. I don't even know the title of the book. I just remember okay. what the cover looked like. And I'm like, oh, I want it. What was that book? Wasn't that book about X, Y, and Z? So for me, if I can color code, it's very easy for me to remember. And oftentimes I can even remember when a book has a different color spine than the cover, which is the most fucked up thing that publishers do to people like huh. me. I'm like, oh, your book's yellow, but the spine's green. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Oh man. That's I, okay.
1: Um, that's fair. That's fair. I, I guess. For me, person. sometimes it feels like I'm stepping into like the paint section of an Ace Hardware store, and it just is. That's how I feel. That's uh, and and look, Ace is a very useful place. You get a lot of stuff it's there. The shout out to Home Depot. Hardware place. Depot. <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I will not be yeah. joining you in the well, color coded. I love it world. here.
0: We're always accepting new people, like, but no I pressure you from over here. Yeah, no pressure. I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it because I want to hear you shout them out. Favorite bookstore?
1: Loyalty bookstore. <laughs> my, uh, my people, my people. Yeah, It's uh, out here in Maryland in Silver Spring.
0: That's that's the, they run the show. They're the best. Um, okay, this is our speed round. Last book that made you laugh.
1: You know, it's interesting, and we're going to talk about his book, um, but Ross Gay's Inciting Joy. Mm. And why it made me laugh out loud was because I listened to the audiobook mm-hmm. and there were parts of it where Ross is laughing on the audiobook and it's just and like I start laughing because Ross is laughing and you're like and you you must look like a silly like when you're walking down the street like who's this party maybe the people assume you're on the phone your friend told a joke but like it was just very I hadn't heard that in an audiobook before like usually that kind of thing is edited out but he's Mm -hmm. reading something and he thinks it's very funny and then he starts laughing and then you're laughing because his laugh is so infectious and so um that was the last one that made me laugh out loud
0: what's the last book that made you angry
1: this is going to be a, a sort of roundabout way, but a book that I love, love, loves for my friend and colleague Ed Yong, um, an immense world. Yes, and it's such a fantastic book um, about the sort of senses broadly about the senses of other animals mm-hmm. and like how they experience the world so differently than us because of their the different senses they have, right? The different way they see the world, the different way they hear the world, they taste the world, all of these. And and I say it made me angry because it just, I was already, you know, feeling anxiety as so many of us do about climate change Mm -hmm. and and all of the ways that our planet is changing so rapidly because of um, things that we are doing to it. But I think seeing how this book more than anything I've ever read made me more fully appreciate the world around me and like the animals around me, the natural world around me in a way that I I never had. And I'm somebody who like loves animal documentaries. Like I will watch a nature documentary like every day of the week if I could. Um, (laughs) But like, it was like the feeling you get from watching a great David Attenborough documentary, but like rendered with beautiful language. Mm. Um, And that's what Ed did. And, and I was so it makes me angry to think that we are moving toward a world in which so many of these remarkable creatures no longer exist. Mm.
0: Okay, I'm just going to do two more. What's a book you would assign to high school students? As I know you're a teacher, though not a high school teacher. Are mm-hmm. you? Not a, no. I was a high school you teacher. You were, but not anymore. I'm not anymore.
1: I miss it every day. We already brought his name up, but I, I would really love to see David Dennis's book. Assigned in, in high schools. I just I've read a lot of civil rights books. And this one was one of the most intimate and most personal. And I so appreciated getting to see the civil rights movement, the impact that it had on people mm-hmm. in ways that are not filled with glory. Mm-hmm. And also the impact that it had on those people's children, right? Like David, you know, and and it just, that's not always part of the story Mm -mm. um, is what is sacrificed both from the individual, but also from that individual's family in order to try to build a more, and so I just, I I keep telling David, I was like, this book, I I had high expectations for David, but this is phenomenal. Yeah. It just was, it was, it was so, so good. And I was so, I'm so, so proud. Um, to have like been in the same, for those who don't know, me and David Dennis went to college together
0: with Steph Curry, so,
1: no, Steph Curry, right. The light um,
0: skin trio.
1: Oh man. I
0: think <laughs> the light skin
1: trio. Yes. Um, I'm, sl- I think I'm a little bit more Brown, but, you're, you're um, the
0: darkest of the three, but I, yeah, of the
1: three. But yeah we were all, we were all there. Um, you know, eating, eating our, our chicken parm in, in the cafeteria. Um, and uh but David, you know, we were literally were in the same poetry class in college and and to see what's happened with his career. i mean he's like this the e s p n guy now
0: I know. it's uh it's amazing. Well, David, now that I know this about David, he's going to have to write us a poetry collection on parenting because he's Look, also a parent and you guys can compete. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And we can host it on a bonus episode of the Stacks, the slam poetry competition between the Davidson boys. Oh, um, my gosh! <laughs> OK, last one. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be?
1: It's interesting. This is going to be the, the Venn diagram of last time I was on the show, because I think the one of the questions you asked me last time was if one person if you could have your book read by one person, who would it be? And I said Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember just being like, (laughs) I hope you think it's good, please. But I would have Biden read Prophet of Freedom by David Blight, which is a biography of Frederick Douglass and one of the most extraordinary biographies I've ever read. And just is such a detailed treatment of one of the most important people in world history um, and one of the people who has helped shape the landscape and the possibilities for this Mm. country in ways that few other Americans have. Um, And so I was so glad that, you know, David, uh, you know, David's also a a historian without whom there would be no how the word is passed. You Mm. know, there's many historians who I relied on for that project, but David's work on public memory and history and how all of that fits into the sort of larger historiography of slavery is, is second to none. And he's just also just a good dude. Very generous. Um, his book is, is extraordinary.
0: I love it. Just like last time when you were here, we went way over. People, oh, don't be mad. Just enjoy. You got bonus time with Clint Smith. Don't write me a letter. I won't read <laughs> it. Um, Clint and even more bonus time. Clint will be back on April 26th to discuss Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay for our Poetry Book Club episode. Very excited. Clint, thank you so much for being here.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: Always fun. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Clint Smith for being our guest. He'll be back on April 26th. For our book club discussion of Ross Gay's 2015 poetry collection, Catalog: Unabashed Gratitude. I also want to say a quick thank you to Lena Little for helping to make this conversation possible. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreoncom slash stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts, and if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, TheStaxPodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.